Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jaroska Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, December 8th, 2022. Here's a headline, a breaking headline uh, over my phone, not in a newspaper. I'll show my distinguished guests. It's my phone uh, from the Washington Post. I could probably read it in the New York Times as well, but as folks who listen to the show I just recorded know, I am in solidarity with the New York Times reporters on a one-day strike. Uh, the inks, my fellow ink stain wretches at the New York Times, uh, who aren't stained by ink anymore since everybody does things on computers. But uh, I will now, uh, in solidarity, I'll read this Washington Post story as opposed to the one I'm sure that just broke in the New York Times. Here it goes. This is very apropos of what we're going to be talking about. Justice Department asks judge to hold Trump in contempt over Mar-a-Lago case. It never ends with this man. Donald Trump has broken every single record, in my humble opinion, I've been around a lot, for malfeasance by a president. And that's, I'll tell you what, in my lifetime, you're talking Richard Nixon. There was a lot of malfeasance in the Ronald Reagan administration, for that matter, too. Uh, But I don't believe any president alone. You know, there were uh, a lot of the malfeasance in uh, Reagan's administration were his cronies, his uh, appointees, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, Not Reagan himself. This is all Donald John Trump. (laughs) You know what, Trump? I got to give you, I'm just going to give a shout out. I got to give you credit. When it comes to malfeasance, you're the champ and the chump. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself because we have a lot to talk about on this subject. So without further ado, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, Ben. Uh, My name is Jim Coogan. I am the principal attorney here at Coogan Gallagher. We're a trial lawyer firm on the northwest side here in Park Ridge and uh, an interested citizen and observer of the legal entanglements of our former president. 
Yes, and he's also a very dear friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show. As long as I've had a show, Jim Coogan's been uh, very generously coming on the show talking legal issues. Uh, and I'll tell you what, folks, I give him homework assignments. I send him articles to write, to, to read. I send him, like, briefs that I've read. You know, I just send him stuff all the time. Uh, and uh, this time, he did one step extra. Ladies and gentlemen, I will show to you the jury. Uh, even though you can't see it because this is audio only, uh, two-page printout of an email that Jim sent me. I'm really showing this to Jim to show him I really printed it out. I uh, What he did was he dutifully went through all the um, the archives to put all the outstanding cases that Donald Trump is Donald Trump. <laughs> Paging Sigmund Freud. That's true. We're the chumps. Uh, yeah, we're the chumps, not Trump. But uh, Donald Trump's uh, legal battles, it's two full pages. These are just the, the cases. It's not like a, a analysis. It's just he went through and he, uh, he dutifully wrote down the cases. Uh, I am going to shamelessly uh, steal this from this for the next, I don't know, two months. Uh, Jim jokingly said before the show, I, there's some kind of copyright infringement. I see it, court kid. Uh, so, Jim, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. This is a great cheat sheet. Uh, it's really invaluable. Uh, there are, let's see, uh, nine on this page. Uh, there are uh, 10 headline cases. Uh, that Trump is currently involved in. Uh, and I'm going to start with the one that I've been following, probably the closest uh, and um, maybe the least known. Uh, and this is the Trump civil rape case uh, having to do with a lawsuit by the great writer E. Jean Carroll, uh, who claims that Trump raped her uh, in a dressing room of, what was it, uh, Bergdorf Goodman, I want to say. I'm doing it off the top of my head at a uh, department store dressing room. Very uh, uh, strange uh, allegation because the when I say strange, it's the behavior of Donald Trump in this one. Really, uh, the allegation anyway is very twisted behavior by Donald Trump. So uh, this case is still alive. Jim Coogan, I'm sure a lot of people figured, oh, this will never go anywhere, but it's at least two years old, I, th I want to say, uh, and it's still alive. Why don't you uh, update us a little bit, talk about what the issues are in this particular case. Go ahead. Well, case in point, this is why I needed to create a memorandum and write this stuff down, because even this case is so twisted and tangled, and legally there's so many layers to it, um, but I'll try to untangle it just for the purposes of this discussion. Um, as you mentioned, the alleged incident happened more than 30 years ago, I think, but, uh, and I think it was Bergdorf Goodman, but the original impetus for the legal action that Carol took was Trump denying it and calling her a liar. And the reason why I say there's even more layers to this, because this was the incident that led to, uh, what I think was kind of disgraceful and, and, and a misappropriation and misuse of government resources and the justice department. Um, here was a case where, E. Jean Carroll sued Donald Trump for defamation for what he said. And Trump said, well, this happened while I was in office, so the Justice Department should defend me. And former uh, Attorney General Bill Barr agreed with that assessment uh, over a lot of people's objections. So putting that aside, because uh, at this point, 
he's not in office anymore. <clears throat> and I think that there is, I think he's got civil attorneys actually representing him in the case. Uh, ultimately, it was just a defamation case. So it's not really about the sexual conduct or battery itself, but a lawsuit for calling her a liar. However, more wrinkles come into play because following all of the um, church, Boy Scout, other uh, various organizations that have been uh, investigated over the past decade, 20, 30 years, and that's really come to a head in the last five or six years in Pennsylvania, in Illinois, in New York, lots of other states as well, but principally these states, uh, states are taking different kinds of, of legislative action to change how victims of sexual abuse can bring lawsuits for that sexual abuse. So in New York, they went to, I, I believe this is the only state that's done this so far, uh, fairly extreme, but I think in a lot of people's minds, justifiable degree to pass uh, a statute that allowed for a look back period, which essentially anytime you're suing somebody for anything in a civil case, or this applies to criminal as well, we have what's called a statute of limitations. There's a time frame that after it runs out, you can't sue them anymore. You can't bring the charges anymore. A lot of people are familiar with TV shows talking about how there's no statute, statute of limitations for rape in criminal cases or, or for murder in criminal cases. You know, usually they don't put those time frames on those things in the criminal courts because uh, you'd want to be able to bring cold cases if suddenly the evidence came to light. Well, civil cases, they try to put a, a cap on these things because otherwise people, would, people, corporations, organizations would face unlimited liability. And while as a trial lawyer on the plaintiff side, uh, you know, I'd rather not be as constrained, I can understand that it's fair for people to say, look, it's been five years, it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, we got to close the books on potential things coming out of the woodwork that would potentially expose us to, to a lot of money liability. So New York said, for starting in a, a specific date in November, anyone who has a sexual battery claim for being assaulted in whatever way, battered in whatever way, whether it's a full-on you know, penetration and the horrible things that I think Ms. Uh, Carroll is alleging or something else that falls within the statute, they've got one year to file those lawsuits. So she had a pending defamation case. And then Donald Trump made a statement about a month ago where he called her a liar again. So she's going to file another lawsuit for defamation for that. And she's filed another lawsuit for the rape itself, for the sexual battery itself, because of this look back period. So it's really, uh, just like you mentioned, he's, he's got so many cases, you can't keep track of them. This is like three for one right here. Uh, all of them facing civil liability where she's suing him for money damages over what he did. Yeah. And, um, so this is a, a civil, they're all civil. Well, it, so is the look back case, uh, purely civil or would there, could also be a criminal punishment. Could he go to jail uh, for that case? Well, that would be up to prosecutors. So, you know, there are, it's rare, but there are times when prosecutions can follow civil action. Uh, sometimes there are, there are families that are grieving over something that happened, bring a wrongful death cl claim, and then uh, a potential criminal prosecution for murder is brought afterwards because maybe they bring the light evidence that the prosecutors really weren't focusing on or, whatever prosecutorial resources were stretched too thin or the police really just weren't focusing on that case for whatever reason, uh, sometimes that happens. So it could happen here if there's no other bar on, on uh, criminal prosecution and a criminal statute of limitations for this rape. But again, they're, they're, to, just to clarify, 
there may be there may not be a lot of evidence here. They, they may not have the kinds of things that you need to justify bringing a criminal case where you have to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt to take someone's liberty away as compared to a different burden that you have in a civil case where Jean Carroll and her lawyers would only need to prove more likely than not that based upon what she could show, which I think might include some physical evidence, uh, certainly her statements, maybe there's some other corroboration. I don't know all the details because I'm, I'm not familiar with all the discovery that they've passed back and forth, but they have to prove that case that more likely than not, he actually lied and, and called her a liar and that it wasn't true or that him calling her a liar wasn't true or that he actually committed this sexual battery. They would be, they probably would be separate cases. They might be consolidated for discovery, but I don't know for sure whether you'd try them all together because the elements are different. And one is really proving that he lied about her. The other is proving that he actually did the thing. So it could get confusing, but that's probably more of a civil procedure question for how New York uh, sets up those cases in their system. Yeah. Uh, and I do recall uh, mention of uh, physical evidence being uh, present that, that uh, E. Jean Carroll uh, had some sort of physical evidence. Uh, and they've asked for a, a DNA sample, so they that must have correct. something. Yes. And that's the point. And they, at the time, there were uh, comparisons to uh, Monica Lewinsky's uh, case uh, re- with Bill Clinton, where there was the uh, infamous, I think it was blue dress uh, with the stains on it. So uh, we'll see where this one goes. It's a, um, a really outrageous, a shocking uh, accusation of just brutal rape uh, about the, that, that uh, E. Jean Carroll said that Donald Trump raped her. Uh, and I always remind uh, MAGA people about this pending case uh, because uh, MAGA people will tell me uh, if they want to come up with an argument that, well, uh, you know, all the accusations, accusations against Donald Trump are white-collar crime, as though that makes it less uh, objectionable, as opposed to, Ben, what's happening on our streets all the time right now. Well, you know, uh, this is an accusation of rape. Uh, and uh, MAGA's ability to look the other way at it is um, really interesting. Uh, the other point uh, this I'd love to elaborate on is Donald Trump's efforts early on uh, to have the Justice Department represent him uh, would save him a nickel and a dime uh, on having to hire another attorney. His legal bills must be outrageous, Jim. But... Um, it's just another tactic of Trump. I'd love for you to, to uh, expound on this. Donald Trump uh, fights back when it comes to lawsuits. He's, this is clearly a venue that uh, he has practiced in for a long time. Not personally, he's not a lawyer, uh, but he's been sued and has sued, uh, been, uh, has sued many times over the years. Uh, so uh, he fights back. He uses the court's to his advantage. And this is another case of you delay, you delay the uh, lawsuit by filing countersuits, or uh, in this case, the appeal to have the Justice Department represent him, et cetera, and so forth. Talk a little bit about that, that tactic of Donald Trump uh, to delay justice by filing uh, other claims or, uh, uh, or p- with, uh, that are almost of secondary nature to the accusation against him. Well, in the uh, the law school of, of press releases and public opinion, they call it the Roy Cohn method. So that was his mentor as far as how to deal with the legal system. 
you punch, you don't just fight back. You don't just, you punch back. Uh, you make loud, uh, outrageous public statements. You file counterclaims for hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. You do the most outrageous thing possible to uh, intimidate and scare your opponent. And it doesn't work for everybody. But for this particular guy, he benefited from having the sort of the, the road was paved for him when it all started, when he was taking over his father's business and then inherited his father's successful, wealthy business and all the wealth that came along with it and land ownership. And, uh, and Roy Cohn, at least for some period of time until he decided to disown him when it was no longer politically or personally convenient, which is, of course, another Trump trait. Uh, loyalty flows in one direction. But Cohn, uh, was, that was his thing. He, he was outrageous. He was outlandish. He would smear people. He would use the press when he could. And Trump learned all those tactics in the, in the 70s and the 80s. And he's only, you know, it's only gotten more sophisticated over time. And while there are lots of law firms that don't want anything to do with him, and that number has continued to dwindle since he took the oath of office in 2017, there's still people out there. There's still, there's, there, you know, some of these lawyers are really young. You can tell they're trying to make a name for themselves. It's an opportunity to get on at least some television stations and, uh, and make the case publicly, which is a big part of it. Uh, the, I, I've never, it's, I'm not even sure if the legal outcome of most of these cases matter as much as winning the uh, the public argument and winning the media argument is to him. Because again, even though I think we both know, and I think it's it's more likely than not that he's not a multi-billionaire, he's still very wealthy. He can still pay these lawyers. He can still pay press mouthpieces to go plead his case and, and, and make his argument in the public sphere. And perception is the most important thing in the world to this guy, along with intention, or excuse me, attention. Yeah. And then uh, since he uh, has been president, he has all these constitutional uh, counter arguments to make. I don't know if he uh, was so highfalutin back in the day when he would just be fighting a lawsuit, I don't know, with a contractor who wanted his money, uh, you know, which was a favorite uh, Trump tactic down through the years, you know, not pay the people uh, that you owe money to. Uh but now he'll like executive privilege and uh, attorney-client privilege, and uh, so th- these are like matters uh, of legal principle that go beyond he said she said stuff and could go all the way to the Supreme Court. So every single one needs to be adjudicated because there's an important constitutional principle at play. He's asserting some kind of right whether he has that right or not. And that just drags it out even further. People, it's hard to keep track of it. It's one of the things you've done in this memo is you've kept track of all, of, uh, of all the counter, like these constitutionalists he raises. Uh, having reflected upon this, Jim, we've talked, in each case, we've had shows where we've talked about attorney client privilege and executive privilege, et cetera, and so forth. But when you, when you look back and you think of it, do you think there's any legitimacy overall to what Trump is doing here when he, when he makes these claims, or is this just one more Roy Cohen tactic to drag things out? Well, assuming the office of the president greatly expanded the number of clubs in his golf bag of legal delay and, and deny and obfuscation tactics, because as you pointed out, so think of, you even have to break down what you just said, because the 
attorney-client privilege had been asserted in lots of situations where the attorney in question was the White House legal counsel, not his personal attorney. And they are not the, the lawyers to the president, but the people you appoint to that position are, of course, they're serving at the pleasure of the president, and they're in a very difficult, conflicted position when they disagree with the president, as we witnessed when Don McGahn, at least some of the public, some of the information, I don't know how reliable it was, but information about things he said or objected to or refused to be part of certain meetings were the product of Trump then using conversations with, again, these are not really his lawyers, but then saying, well, any discussions that I had with them are subject to executive privilege and just delays things because someone has to sort through that and determine whether it's accurate or not. Uh, Particularly if he also injected some other personal lawyer like uh, Rudy Giuliani into that meet in any of whatever that meeting is. We're, we're talking basically like past tense hypotheticals now. But when you throw that in there, does you know? There, then there's a question of whether there was a waiver of attorney-client privilege and uh, all of this. And then, of course, the most obvious of all is the continued representation that he could not participate in various uh, litigation, specifically because he's the president. And even though there is a Supreme Court case that you and I are both aware of where the Supreme Court said that no, uh, former President Clinton had to participate in the civil case uh, with Paula Jones, it it didn't mean that he wasn't going to continue to litigate that in any given instance where it was inconvenient for him to sit for a deposition, or he didn't want to produce documentation for whatever the claim was that was at issue. So uh, is there legitimacy to it? I mean, some of them have been adjudicated and, and some things were legitimate and others weren't. But really, the point of it is never I don't think the outcome or the substance is, is usually the point. It's the delay itself. The, the, uh, the time frame stretching that out is the product. That's the goal. So it's been successful to that extent. And a lot of this ended up being delayed until he left office. Some of it didn't arise until he left office, including the January 6th stuff for obvious reasons. But um, even the, the E. Jean Carroll case, uh, was greatly delayed and might've been further along in discovery or getting to a trial date had it not been for the fact that he was the president. Yeah. And, uh, and I like I said, uh, hats off to E. Jean Carroll. She has persisted and she's been, uh, very tenacious. Uh, and, uh, I do believe this, uh, there will be depositions, uh, and this case will come to court, uh, and we'll see what, how Trump, uh, squirms out of this one or attempts to squirm out of this one. All right. Uh, and one matter, uh, there has been a jury decision. It just occurred, I think it was, uh, earlier this week or last week. I've lost track of time. Uh, and this is at the top of your list, the Trump corporation criminal case in New York, uh, conviction on all 17 counts against Trump Corporation uh, and Trump Payroll Corporation. This is so classic Donald Trump. This has less to do with Donald Trump's behavior as president than Donald Trump's uh, behavior as a quote-unquote businessman. This is, gets into the how. <laughs> I got to laugh, man. It, it, instead of just paying his employees a healthy salary because they're all professionals and they're involved in all these high-stake deals, what he does, it's always, always something with Donald Trump. So here's what I'm going to do. You know, that's a terrible imitation. Instead of paying him a healthy salary, he'll like he'll pick up the uh, tuition 
costs for their kid to go to a school or their grandkid to go to school. He maybe buy him a car or get a, who knows if he paid for it, get a pal to, who knows how he got the car, but they, they get the car and it, this lowers the amount he has to pay them. Uh, and, uh, I, I guess they're satisfied with the arrangement because they, they remain loyal to him. Who knows what's going on psychologically with people who work for Donald Trump. I think that's uh, for Sigmund Freud country. Uh, but he finally got nailed for it in New York. Going to uh, uh, Jim, explain to people what happened uh, and what the jury decided and the uh, ramifications for Donald Trump. Yeah, so the, the tax fraud that was alleged here was you, you sort of, you, you laid it out. Uh, rather than giving the employee their salary, paying the payroll taxes, and then having the, the employee deal with the, their own individual tax return, whatever they, you know, their exemptions and their credits and their, uh, their own taxes, they would, as a company, purchase uh, or get a lease for a car and then pay for that lease or get uh, pay for tuition or pay for an, a, a really fancy expensive apartment. And instead of the employee doing it when the company did it, they pretended like it was a business expense and would inflate the amount of some bonus that they would put on the books, but then never pay any payroll taxes related to it. So it was essentially, it's, it's dodging the, the most, the simplest part of running any business, which is you have to pay your payroll taxes. You have to pay the taxes for the things that you give your employees that is a benefit to them. Uh, so it's, it's not really that complicated. Although, the defense in the case, essentially, they went with one argument, but there's a couple ways to say it. More or less, they blamed it all on Alan Weisselberg or anybody else who signed off on the individual transactions. Although, according to what I was reading about the evidence in the trial, some of those uh, signatures were Donald Trump's himself. So I'm not sure how you get around that. But the frame that the defense attorneys presented that they're going to use for if they do appeal, you know, they always say they're going to, doesn't mean they actually will. But if they appeal, there is a, a phrase in New York law on this that's um, in behalf of, not on behalf of, in behalf of. And it, it's sort of simple once you think it through. The question is whether that action, giving that benefit to whoever, whether it was Alan Weisselberg himself, because I understand that some of it were, some of these things were his, he got some of these benefits but also many other employees of the Trump Corporation. Um, did they do it as an action in behalf of the company versus, I guess, what would effectively would be embezzlement, where they're just buying something, signing it on the company check, but giving it to themselves? So the jury didn't believe any of it, but there was, I think that led to a complicated jury instruction, and that was really the closing argument that you got to try to make the case that somehow this wasn't in the service of the company. And I, I guess they must've also said, well, the company didn't know. And how could we possibly be aware? But I don't, there's not really that many people in this company. So I'm not sure how any of that would have made sense, which this is where you have the conscious of the community and the jury realized that this was bunk. So uh, this in behalf of, I think would be the basis for some appeal that either the instruction was wrong or they'll just keep arguing that the evidence did support that these were rogue employees doing this on their own. Um, but that's not how the jury felt about it. No, the jury did not feel that way about it at all. And there was, uh, uh, an interview with one of the alternate jurors. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Jim, the alternate jury was not identified because they were, uh, they were worried about, uh, 
I don't I don't blame them at all. Uh, MAGA abuse, uh, if they knew about him, because MAGA loves Donald Trump so much, they would turn on this person. Um, but it was it was funny. This I don't know was it he or she, but they were like, "Oh my God, of course they were guilty. There was no doubt about it." You know, and uh, their only concern was this: this one person was younger, and they thought that the older jurors, I don't know, might be sympathetic to Trump, but. Even the boomers on the jury uh, didn't fall for it, and uh, they weren't sympathetic to Trump. Now, there's no direct punishment to Donald Trump. Am I correct about this? Or is this like a fine he has to pay, but that's it? But he uh, himself largely uh, skated free of any direct uh, consequences. Am I correct on that one, Jim? Right. So it is a criminal conviction, but the conviction is of the, the company, the corporation. So not him as an individual. Uh, presumably the tax bill, the, the penalties and the fine here will be paid by the corporation. So um, it, it's not really him personally, but uh, I think one other interesting point about this case from a messaging standpoint is Trump complained about, or afterwards, whatever his statements or truths or whatever they call it these days, how it's just to- so unfair for him in, in New York and it's a tough place for Trump. And I think that one I read because he put it in quotes, which is always weird if you're talking about yourself in the third person, but it's even weirder if you put your name in quotes. If you start if you start texting me and you start saying, complaining about how, I don't know, like the Chicago media or some electoral figure is being mean to Benny J and you start putting it in quotes, <laughs> I'm no. going to try to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to some of your friends and make sure that you're okay. Like check out if you're doing all right. But what I wanted to mention about that is that's, that's not as persuasive of a claim that he might think it is. This is your hometown. I mean, if they hate you there, that says something about you. It's not, I mean, maybe New York is a tough place. It's a tough media environment. People yell at you if you don't move your car, that kind of thing. But if they hate you there, you probably did something. In your own, <laughs> like, you know, you peed in your own pool, and that's why people don't want you around anymore. Like, it's, it's not really an indictment of them. It says something about you. Who would know you better? Who knows you better than your hometown? So, yeah. I don't know. I, I felt like that was worth mentioning. Yeah, no. Uh, by the way, so uh, you're a practicing attorney. Uh, you go before juries. Uh, so you and you follow uh, the antics of Donald Trump and his lawyers. Is there ever a moment uh, to me when I hear a Donald Trump or I read the quotes of a Donald Trump lawyer? I think of that there was a character on uh, a comedian back in the '90s. I think his name was John Lovitz. And his whole thing was he was a liar. This may be before your time. He was very funny. We'd always lie. Uh, his character would lie. And I just, and then and he would get caught in the lie and then he would just try to get out of the lie. And, and he, uh, so, like, when you find yourself uh, reading the quotes from these lawyers that Trump has, has uncovered <laughs> from under some rock or whatever, uh, do you ever find yourself going, you know, that's not a bad one? I don't believe you for one minute, but that's not bad. Do you ever find yourself like with that kind of There's a way attitude? after that. I, here's what I do see. Sometimes I'll see a rhetorical point that I could imagine someone might be persuaded by. It it's not supported by the facts, but you know, they go they, they usually go with a lot of victimization and the, either the process was unfair, the judge was unfair, the law itself is unfair, the constitution is unfair, the universe whatever it is. There's a lot of victimization and they kind of spin that into how somehow he was deprived of some opportunity or something. Uh, I mean, you know, this, the, the mega crowd, I don't think 
other than the ones who were already attorneys or were really into crime dramas or something, were not familiar with the phrase due process or had a conception of what it might be until he came around. And then it was all, well, due process. He needs his due process. He's got to have due process. Because that's, look, if you, if you, have, if you have no argument on the merits, and going back to the beginning of this discussion, if you ultimately one of your primary strategies is just to see if you can delay it to exhaust the prosecution, see if that prosecutor leaves office or, or run the uh, civil attorneys out of their resources, then it's part and parcel with complaints about how even the thing that you were stringing along and using to your advantage was also unfair to you. Yeah, uh, but it, it doesn't really... There's a certain mentality you have to have to be able to do that because, you know, and you've seen it, like there's, there's clever criminal defense attorneys who do this because, look, if you have nothing else, and even if your guy didn't confess to you, but you know he probably did it, or at least you know the evidence is really bad, either you say nothing or you have to say something and it's worth taking a shot. But then again, again, this is not, these, these aren't, this isn't some poor guy who got, you know, convicted or is charged with a murder, like some local thing. This is where not only do they feel like they're compelled to say something, but they're still going out and trying to win the narrative, even under these circumstances, even if he's being asked to be held in contempt, even if the documents are in his own house, they're still saying how they keep calling it a raid. It's things like that, where it's, uh, it's gaslighting. It's mind games. Yeah. We'll get to that uh, particular case. Uh, uh, but, uh, but by the way, so is there any what's next with the Trump Corporation criminal case? Uh, is this at the end of the road with it or is there uh, another chapter for these charges? That would be it. They, the defendants can file an appeal now that there's a conviction. Um, and I, they mentioned the number, but I, I thought there was still a, maybe it was just the potential fine. Because I didn't think the sentencing was actually until next week. That, of course, once there's a conviction, then there's the sentencing, and the judge has to actually issue what it is. Because it's a corporation, you know, you can't really put anybody in jail so or in prison. So it would be the, whatever the monetary fine is. And then once there's a final judgment, they have the clock starts ticking on uh, whether the defense appeals. Okay, uh, so you can't put Trump in prison over this one. Uh, so let's see if you can put Trump in prison over this case. Uh, and that brings us to the documents, uh, the public documents, uh, that should have been uh, left with the government when Trump left office, but instead somehow or other, they found themselves, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. I think it was in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and after a protracted back and forth, the FBI had a raid. Uh, Jim and I did a whole show about this. Uh, talked about special master. Uh, since we did that show, uh, the ruling uh, by the judge on the special master part of the case uh, has been overturned. Uh, she's been chastised. Uh, the the uh, the appellate court was harder on her than we were, I think, Jim, uh, <laughs> which is hard to believe. Uh, so why don't you uh, update folks on what's going on uh, with this case? Yeah, this uh, they did better than Geraldo did trying to find Al Capone's uh, vault. <laughs> Um, yeah, so th this, this is actually, what, what's really interesting about this case is for people who, and I'm not a government lawyer and I've, I've never did that as in my career, but for those who are involved in government, it probably looked other than the brazen attempts to pretend like they weren't holding on to documents. It probably looked very, it wasn't surprising. In other words, you had very pleasant, polite, nice people from the national archives that we're just kind of continuously saying, look, we think you still have things. Please give them back. This went on for months. I mean, it, 
there, I personally, and if anybody brought it up, and I think we might have talked about it a few months ago, push back on any of the raid narratives or any of these narratives that it was somehow unfair when you finally got the TikTok of they spent months asking for these things very nicely. They tried to coordinate things with Trump and his lawyers. They they made it clear to him that they he ha- they know they have an idea based upon the record keeping system of what's missing. And they were pretty confident that he's the one who has them because who else would? So he got every benefit of the doubt from a very polite, reasonable system that he then, of course, proceeded to take advantage of and essentially will blow off and then put people out there to lie on his behalf. I mean, there are some attorneys who signed documents attesting to the fact that they did comply with the, re- with the requests to return everything and claiming that he'd returned everything at multiple stages here that are not, they're not, they're in trouble. They'll probably say this was based on information and belief. This is what was told to me. I didn't know. I mean, I don't know if that's good enough. Why you wouldn't, feel, we're not talking about uh, an unlimited number of places where they could have looked for these things and they're not digital, they're paper documents. So if you're doing a reasonable level of due diligence, one would think it includes actually looking around or at least asking and making a documentation of, okay, I asked Mr. Trump and his staff, where could you keep things in this building? And then I made a list. And then we walked around to each of these places. And I don't know, everybody's got an iPhone or a Android, and we videotaped the process to make sure that there was nothing here. I don't know if that's what they're going to use in their defense if they did if they did it. They didn't do that. It's not good for them. But it also goes back to the other part that we talked about earlier, that for God's sake, this is what? Four months after the original, uh, the FBI actually had to physically go to the place and seize all these things. Now they're finding that there were some documents in some other storage facility that he didn't report that he had in his possession. It wasn't supposed to happen. It came out last night. Yeah, I wrote an entire script of what we we're going to talk about for this show, and I had to tear the thing up because there's still breaking news at like 11.45 p.m. Uh, on one of these subjects that you'd think, you'd think at this point when you've got, uh, a, a established criminal investigation. He's been made aware that he's the subject of a criminal investigation into whether he broke various uh, Espionage Act or other uh, secrecy laws, and yet persists in still keeping something. And then you think, well, what is it that it's so bad or so personal or something that that it's that he wouldn't want it to get out, or is it so valuable that he was willing to risk? all of the wrath of the entire justice department uh, to hold on to it in spite of the fact that now he's also made more representations that he turned everything over. I mean, you start to really just, it's, it's just bewildering that that's how somebody would behave in this circumstance. But um, yeah, so we have the original effort to sidetrack the criminal investigation by filing this lawsuit by a very uh, targeted judge, Eileen Cannon, that Trump had appointed into this uh, circuit or district or whatever they call it in Florida, uh, or I guess it's federal court, so it's a district. Um, and that was completely blown up by the 11th Circuit, which I did feel very gratified that the show that we did talking about it, we were both kind of scratching our heads. We knew it didn't make any sense. And for some of the reasons that were outlined in that circuit court opinion, which include the most obvious of all, you could not possibly have a functioning criminal justice system if everybody who was charged with something where they didn't like the charges or they didn't like the way that the police or the FBI seized evidence 
could file a civil case and get an injunction to stop them from using the evidence? Again, it's criminal procedure 101. Every lawyer, everybody who went to law school learned that what you do is you contest the admissibility of that evidence. You have some kind of whatever they call it in your state, a preliminary hearing, and you say, hey, the the police didn't have a warrant. And the exigent circumstances that they're claiming justified the search were not true, or the warrant was was deficient, or they went outside the scope of the warrant. All of these things are things you raise in the criminal process. You can't inject civil injunctive relief, which is, I use injunction a couple of times here, you're basically asking a judge to do something where you're actually stopping things from happening. Most of the time in the law, we're kind of cleaning up the mess after it's happened, whether somebody committed a crime or breached a contract or crashed into someone and injured them. We're sort of cleaning it up and figuring out what remedy has to happen. Injunctive power is really powerful. You're stopping something from happening. It, it, it would just never work. And her decision that she put in writing was not well-founded. It wasn't well-founded in the law. It wasn't based on any precedent. It, it really, it made no legal sense. And I can say that with confidence because the 11th Circuit agrees with that now. Um, so that, that in, the, in the midst of that, before that decision came out about a week or so ago, uh, there had been this special master that was appointed. Now that is just gone. It doesn't matter anymore. Whatever he was doing, it won't matter because it should never have been done in the first place. Um, if Now, some of the work that was done there, if they identified documents that actually should not have been uh, taken by the FBI, if they had some legitimate privilege or some other thing, well, you know, maybe some of the sorting through it has already been done. That might make it easier, frankly, for the FBI or for whoever's going to review and say, well, this stuff is either irrelevant or it's not top secret, it's not classified, so it doesn't matter to this prosecution. But that's really more just housekeeping. That has nothing to do with the substance of the case. Uh, now it's full steam ahead. And all, basically, uh, simultaneous with that is the Justice Department deciding that uh, the way to potentially shield this investigation from future meddling, or maybe just to make sure that it moves faster than if it was part of the regular Justice Department operations, they've appointed this special counsel to be the prosecutor. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you look at this particular case, uh, and uh, I'm thinking of our good friend Monroe Anderson when I asked this question, because Monroe has been predicting uh, for four years, I think, that Donald Trump will end up going to prison. Uh, and um, so far, uh, Donald Trump has uh, avoided that fate. But when you look at this particular uh, case, where they got him. I mean, it's pretty obvious that uh, he broke the law here. Uh, <laughs> he had documents that he shouldn't have, and he had them stored in his basement. And then he, even after he swore up and down that he had turned over every document that he had, he found, <laughs> hey, oops, under the plant. I didn't look under, whatever. Uh, could this be the case that sends Donald Trump to prison, in your humble opinion? <laughs> You know, if anything, it would be one of the most likely to do so, if only because the laws are clear. Possession here, I mean, I, I you know, you could argue some weird thing about it wasn't really in my possession. It was, I don't know, like the, the groundskeeper of Mar-a-Lago actually had possession of these, so I'm not criminally liable. They could, they could come up with some weird defense or something, but I don't know what, it, I, don't, I don't know what the legitimate defense is going to be. 
Um, and in the public light, all they're, they're just still going with witch hunt and raids. So that it kind of it tells you how empty the the quiver is here. They don't have a, they they ran out of golf clubs in the in the bag of of legal tricks and and obfuscation. So um, the other part of it is what what we don't know as a public. We know that there were special designations for at least a hundred. I've seen I've seen upwards of three hundred documents. I'm not sure what the precise number is, not being part of the investigation. But depending on how serious those documents are and the types of secrets that they contain, the government does not mess around with these kinds of things. And frankly, they shouldn't. Look, if, if we're going to have a government that we're all a part of, right? We pay our taxes. We're all citizens, but we've sort of tacitly agreed that they can keep things from us because it's in, it's in the interest of national security. That applies to everyone. And if you're not allowed to have them or you're not, you don't have the right, his clearance, of course, was unlimited when he was the president. But if you're not allowed to keep them when you leave, which it, he clearly was not, that's a serious crime. It just is. It's, they, they go, the government takes it very seriously who is allowed to have uh, clearance levels and takes it very seriously, the, the custodial nature of, of possessing these things to make sure that they don't fall into the wrong hands. And if it is nuclear secrets, if it is something of a security nature, it would be really grave too. So I think part of the answer to your question is it would certainly be justified if they, can, if they have a conviction, which I assume he would force them to go to trial over, which would be, that would be a bonanza and bonkers, I'm sure. But why wouldn't this lead to that? Unless, you know, some kind of deferred prosecution, some sort of, you know, house arrest thing, whatever you do, maybe as a favor for a former president. But he also hasn't worked very hard to ingratiate himself with 60% of America or anyone who remains in power in government who doesn't slavishly worship him. So he doesn't have a lot of friends either. He doesn't have Gerald Ford back there to, to pardon him. Um and most of the Senate, I think, off the record, there's almost, there may be three or four Republicans who are actually on his side. Like, and for good reason. You know, it's you don't do this. There's no good reason for him to do this. No. Well, I mean, the behavior exhibited in uh, taking documents uh, and storing them in your uh, the basement of your home is really bizarre. It just, I, I mean. You know, uh, Monroe and uh, my other friends who t- to take the deep dive uh, into the left's conspiracies into Trump, they have all their theories as to why he did it. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure I believe any of those conspiracies. I, it's just such really uh, bizarre behavior. I can't imagine what he was up to. Uh, it shows just utter arrogance and contempt, which is part of just how Donald Trump behaves uh, in general. I'll take him because I. I want to take them, and that's that. Uh, and I will resist giving them back because I want to resist giving them back. When you're uh, the president, they let you do it, Ben. It's uh, it's all, it all goes back to his hot mic moment on the bus. You just grab the documents you want. When you're the president, they let you do yeah. it. That's his. That's yeah. his attitude. We heard it yeah. right there. Yes, that's that's that pretty much uh, uh, is uh, his attitude. Yeah, I um, uh, and we'll see where this one goes. Uh, the final one that I want to talk about. And to me, you know, when I, this to me is the most, my personal one I, I'm most offended by. Everybody, well, no, I know rape is pretty serious. So, um, but this, this is of his acts as president. Uh, and the, and I, I just don't know how he's avoided prosecution on this one. Um, I guess it's just really hard to prosecute uh, either a 
a former president. But I think, I always say this when I uh, bring this topic up, of how Republicans uh, in Cook County have railed against the various uh, machines, Democratic machines, be they the Madigan machine. Well, not the Daily machine. They cut their deals with Daily. Uh, and, uh, you know, Barrios machine, et cetera. So they're always railing against uh, the outrage of Democrats when they have power. Donald Trump got on the phone with the vote counters in Atlanta, excuse me, in Georgia, in the aftermath of the November 2020 presidential election and said, get rid of the votes uh, the 12,000 votes, whatever it was that, uh, Joe Biden defeated me by so that I could become the winner of the Georgia. He asked them to commit vote fraud. They have him on tape doing that. Jim, he still hasn't been prosecuted for that. Could you imagine if it was Madigan on the phone, the <laughs> calling up the Chicago board of election commissioners and saying, get rid of 20,000 votes, uh, my, the candidate I wanted to win did not win. Uh, talk about the this particular case, the grand jury in Atlanta, uh, still delving into uh, the matters of fraud or attempted vote fraud in Georgia's uh, 2020 election. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that prosecution is afoot. It's happening. Um, the, the, the One of the more public things that happened was... Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham's attempts to avoid having to testify in front of Fan the prosecutor's name is Fannie Willis or Fannie Willis. I've heard it pronounced both ways. He didn't want to testify for obvious reasons in front of the grand jury that she's running to just in essentially grand jury. They're going to decide whether or not they're going to issue charges, whether they'll have a true bill that he should be charged with a crime of election fraud. Um, but what flew a little bit under the radar was Trump's legal, well, again, not Trump's legal team, but his but lawyers from the White House counsel's office have been compelled to testify. And they originally uh, were able to claim some, some uh, attorney-client privilege, but that was overturned. So this was, I, I wrote it down just because I knew some of this stuff was going to be hard to remember all the details, but I think it was Pat uh, Cipollone and, uh, oh, that's the other guy's name, Patrick Philbin. So they have to testify as well. And you and I both know the reason why that tape came out, why the, the audio was leaked to the, I think it was the Washington Post, shortly after it happened, was because either Brad Raffensperger or somebody from his office didn't want to go to prison over this. And they, in fact, I'm sure, because somebody had to turn the tape on, right? You know, you have to actually press record on something before that happens. They must have anticipated, okay, the president's people are calling us. They want him, he wants to get on a call with us. What in God's name could he be calling the uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia about other than that in the wake of the election. It, I mean, that must have been crystal clear. And in typical mob boss Trump speak fashion, he's he's talking elliptically, which I guess will be his attempt to create plausible deniability that he wasn't. Oh, I didn't say commit fraud and just fabricate votes. I said find. Find was the word that he used. But, you know, when you get really specific and you say find, 11,780 votes and you're trailing by 11,779 votes or whatever it was. Uh, it's, it's, it's so transparent that he's like, not, he isn't just too cute by half. He's too cute by 10th or something like that. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that someone would speak this way. 
to other elected officials. Again, just the, the brazenness of the abuse of an elected office, trying to use your power as president to bully people into committing election fraud on your behalf, which I guess the other part of this that's sort of both short-sighted or dumb or something is even if you won Atlanta or Georgia, it wouldn't, that wouldn't have turned the outcome of the election by itself. So, you know, you go back to him. Was he planning on doing the same thing with Pennsylvania or Arizona? I don't know. And well, he tried he in Michigan to- as well. Just he tried. He did the say he called officials in Michigan. They didn't go talk ahead. to him. Is that what happened? Right. Because the secretary think, of state was a Democrat. And she yeah, I don't think it was the secretary. I, I think it was people on an election board. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but there was somebody on an election board in uh, the county uh, in which Detroit is in. He, he caught, got a hold of them, and uh, and it had Wayne to do county, with certifying right? results. Yeah, yeah. Well, you remember <laughs> the other story about that Wayne County count? I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but that came down to like one vote on the county election board. And the guy had the, the uh, God bless him, the patriotism and the courage to say, no, I'm not decertifying all of the votes specifically from Detroit, not the rest of the county, just from the part of Detroit where, of course, people pointed out it, the, it's a 40% black population or 50% black population, uh, which, of course, goes with all of these. You know, whenever you hear a Republican holler about election fraud, there's probably a racial undertone. And that's why it gets so frustrating to even have these conversations because there isn't any legitimacy, but then you have that. But yes, I think, I I think you're right about that. There was an attempt to try to influence that beyond also sending Rudy Giuliani and these weirdos that they brought to testify about fraud and everything else. But you go back to square one on this. Now you've had Lindsey Graham was compelled to testify. Two lawyers were compelled to testify. These are lawyers. Okay. They're very successful lawyers. They're high profile lawyers they're not going to put their license on the line for this guy. So I suppose that they might still have refused to answer questions, but then they might get held in contempt themselves, which, different than a regular person, even that could implicate your law license. doesn't matter whether it's not in the, in the state where you're licensed originally. That's not the point. The point is, if you're held in contempt and a, and a judge says that you've done something that's inconsistent with being an officer of the court, that's serious stuff. So when people like that are being forced to tell the truth about what actually went down and what his, because they can t- attest to his state of mind, whatever conversations he had that weren't recorded on that call. Um, this could be in a hot race with the special prosecutor for what might actually find a serious criminal conviction that could lead to the guy being put in jail. Because it's also <laughs> similar, similar to the documents thing. You know, he did it. It happened. It, it, it's crystal clear and and no no even a mega person i can't i mean i guess there's a lot of delusion there to begin with but they wouldn't why would they even deny that this is who he is of course this is how he acts like there's nothing nobody would question that this is exactly what he would do and would attempt to abuse the office and the powers of the office to influence this to stay in, in office which i mean i guess he's proven that in the last week where now he thinks we shouldn't we should throw out the entire constitution just because he didn't get his way yeah. All right. So now we'll uh, we'll close by shifting a little to from uh, the law to politics. And um, so each one of these lawsuits, each one of these cases was known was a public case before the midterms. Uh, there there have been new developments in all of them. That is correct. It's ongoing. That is correct. But 
either the investigations had been launched and were had been publicized, or the cases had been filed and had been publicized. We knew about them. Uh, I did not hear any Republicans, except for the handful that have been uh, willing to criticize Trump for a while, Mitt Romney, you know, uh, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, we all know the list. We just like, I think there's 10 on the list if you can get that high. Uh, and uh, they pretended it didn't exist. <laughs> One of the, the funniest little uh, twists on this is the interview that uh, Darren Bailey gave uh, to Shia Kapos, a, a political I've talked about on the show, Jim, where Darren Bailey, uh, who just got uh, uh, defeated by J.B. Pritzker for governor, I uh, was talking <laughs> was talking about the Donald Trump factor, and he said, "I just just, just people just can't get over Donald Trump." Uh, a few bad tweets. I, I'm and I'm, <laughs> I had a laugh. I go, "A few bad tweets." We we've now spent an hour barely just barely detailing the illegalities of Donald Trump. So clearly, Republicans were uh, had their head head in the sand. Now we're at a point after Atlanta. After it uh, became clear uh, that Donald Trump was toxic to at least 50% of the voters in a swing state, where Republican chieftains are saying, we better distance ourselves um, from Donald Trump. We better, uh, you know, we, we better have a different person at the helm of the party as we go into 2024, or we will not be able to prevail. Uh, I, I got to laugh, Jim. I can just get your thoughts on this. It's like only because, only because the voters in Georgia barely defeated Trump's handpicked, and I say barely defeated his handpicked candidate, are they willing to slowly speak out against this atrocious human being, Donald Trump? Ignoring all these lawsuits. And violations of the Constitution and his oath and ethics and fair play, et cetera, and so forth. And yet I say that I don't believe MAGA is going to be swayed from its allegiance to Donald Trump. You just did a great job of going through all the particulars of these lawsuits. I don't believe that's going to persuade the diehards in MAGA, and they will stay with Trump no matter what. So... Put on your political hat. You're a political junkie. Do you think that the handful of Republicans who are starting to speak out because of fear of that they're going to lose in 2024 uh, will prevail? Or do you think MAGA will remain loyal to the law-breaking Donald Trump? Your political thoughts. Well, you know, one thing that will always aid and abet this is the information bubble that the those voters exist in. They're not listening to this show. Uh, I, I think that I think that they would. I think that everyone should. I think it was a very educational experience for the listener. But um, they're not going to listen to this show. They don't. They think Rachel Maddow is like a traitor to the country. They think MSNBC is some kind of leftist propaganda. They don't even watch their local news if it starts to talk about something bad about Trump. They change the channel. You've seen all the other stuff where right-wing, hateful people love Tucker Carlson. And even for some of them, Fox News is too far to the left and, and they're just finding their other bubbles. And it's a way, it means that they're never going to hear about, or it might penetrate, but only peripherally, 
And again, any news that they hear about these prosecutions is going to frame it as a witch hunt, a raid, unfair to Donald Trump. This poor guy sacrificed his fortune and his fame and his wealth and this beautiful lifestyle just to serve the people. And these bloody leftists are trying to take him down and we're not going to let it happen. You you know, you get all the emails. So uh, the solicitation for money emails is what I'm talking about. So look, the other thing about this, Ben, is it's a weird situation. We are in a moment where the Republican Party and American conservatism is completely bereft of ideas. They don't have any solutions for the border, for inflation, for crime. For, they think Medicare is, is going to crash into a wall. They don't have any solution for that. The, one of the most popular social programs in the history of the world, Social Security, they don't have a plan for it. They don't have a plan for any of these things. The guys who are in power, like McConnell, it doesn't matter to him. He's there to continue to be a facilitator for moneyed, moneyed interests who benefit from beneficial laws or actual government contracts. Again, the government largesse that they scream and yell about, and then they have their hands out when they need a bailout or when they're producing something for the government or they're a contractor for some service that they want to privatize all of it. So whatever. But at the end of this, beyond just that part of it, where there's, they can just kind of ignore it because he's out there doing his own thing and it actually helps create cover for them because I don't know if you saw the highlights of the, the these poor families who got the, the Congressional gold medal and all of them snubbed McConnell and snubbed Kevin McCarthy. And afterwards, they asked McConnell about it. And he just he pretended like it didn't happen. He just said, well, we gave out these awards to people for their bravery and their courage and for their family's loss. He didn't even the, the question was, are, are you bothered by the fact that they treated you like you weren't even standing there? And he just ignored the question. But the rest of them the people who couldn't have gotten to Washington if they weren't riding on the orange coattails of this guy. It's like that old, you remember that creepy story that our former governor used to tell about his favorites, which was weird. His favorite story was that thing about, it's a parable about a pet snake or something. And it ends with, you knew I was a snake when you let me into the house. It was some, it was very strange. Dennis, your wonderful producer did a great job of putting that weird, creepy music over it when he would play it. It was great. But that's what this guy is. They let him into the house, and now they're kind of beholden to him because not only do they not have any ideas, there's nothing to other than Democrats are evil. There's nothing positive in it. They didn't even remember 2020. They didn't even have a, a an actual platform at the convention. They just said our platform is whatever the great leader says. So there's no positive plan to get any of these voters to be motivated anymore, other than white grievance, angry Christian grievance. Just grievance in general, Donald Trump's grievance. So you combine all this stuff, and so they're stuck with, he's the only thing that really gets them out to vote sometimes, and now less of them. Incidentally, a friend of mine who was super MAGA before, he's finally starting to give up. He's calling him a loser because he lost. Like it, it took enough losses that he's finally saying, this guy's a loser. Yeah, well, it's, so maybe there's a few that are kind of like waking up from the spell. But you put all these things together, and to, to answer your question, like how will that play out in 2024, they're still tied at the hip to them. There's no other, there's no end game for this. Uh, the, the notion that somehow this autopsy that they're proposing is going to help figure out a new strategy for the Republican Party is a complete farce. I, the people on the committee, you just stop reading as soon as you know who's on the committee. They're not going to do it. Blake Masters and Kellyanne Conway are going to figure out the new messaging 
for the Republican Party in a positive way. Like, here's our solution to the border, as opposed to just calling it an open border, which it isn't. And every time there's a big drug interdiction, saying that this is somehow a failure, even though apparently Border Patrol did its job, which, again, cognitive dissonance is just overwhelming. Um, There's no other place to go. He's the leader of the party. There's no other single figurehead who has any popularity, maybe Ron DeSantis. Um, We're going to watch the saga of Kevin McCarthy starting at the beginning of January. I don't know if he's going to last a month as speaker. I don't even know if he'll be elected as speaker. He's it's in some ways I feel a little bit sorry for him because I read some of the excerpts from that uh, Mark Leibovich wrote that book about some of these insider conversations he had with the guy. He's probably not a he's probably an okay guy in person and he's got all this ambition to be speaker, but he's going to have to lead this den of vipers to, to harken back to that, the way that they characterize the Trump white house. And I don't know how he's going to do it because they're going to have sham investigations. They're going to be screaming into microphones every week. They're never going to get anything done. And they're going to be coming after him if he tries to slow any of it down. So without anybody else who can actually unite the party and say, Hey, we're conservatives. Here's the stuff we actually believe in. And here's our plan to do these things and make government look like you want it to look, which Donald Trump has never uttered those words. It's just American carnage and poor me. I don't know how they divorce themselves of him. If he gets convicted, if he goes to prison, you know, maybe there's a moment of reckoning and somebody could fill that vacuum or something like that. But I don't know. It's a well, weird time, listen, it, it is a weird time. Uh, I don't even think a conviction does it. Uh, because the standard response is witch hunt raid uh, and political payback, and the FBI is now fraudulent. Uh, and so, on the FBI, you ever yeah, think you the FBI? Yeah, yeah. Or, I don't know about a conservative, but a Republican anyway. Republicans. So, uh, I, yeah, I, in the absence of Ron DeSantis giving a very public presentation, be it a speech or a an appearance on Fox where he specifically denounces Donald Trump and says the Republican Party has to divorce itself from Donald Trump. I do not see him losing his hold and control of the Republican Party. Uh, They're all afraid to come out and say that, uh, even in the face of all this stuff. And um, I think when I will close with this, uh, the observation that your friend or whoever he is made, who's a, a MAGA person, uh, that he's a, uh, a loser. It's like, I hear that. And I just like, wow, it's not the lawlessness. It's the loss. You get what I'm saying? So they, they would, they would tolerate all this lawlessness but if it can't, if they're losing those swing voters in suburban Atlanta, who are crucial to giving them the state, well, maybe we have to ditch him, you know? And then (laughs) that's the only thing. I'm like, what a bizarre set of non-principles to fashion a political party on. It's not the lawlessness, it's the loss. Well, and Um, if I can just say one other thing, because I I don't want to seem like I'm nuts for spending time putting together a two-page memo just for this show. I wanted to say this just as a statement of purpose. All right, so... One of the greatest citizens this country ever had, Abraham Lincoln, he's been he's attributed with a lot of great quotes, but one of them is, laws without enforcement are nothing but good advice. So when we get worked up about this stuff, you know, you, you'd hear a right-wing talking point used to be, 
If there's no border, there's no country. I think Trump himself used to say that. If you don't enforce the border, there's no country. Well, frankly, I don't, the borders are not the most important thing. Physical borders are not what makes a country. If you don't enforce the law and make it above individual people, if it's if they're not a nation of laws, but it just some people can be above it, if he somehow finds an exception to it, if we don't have the moral courage to stand up and prosecute these things and say, it's illegal to do this, it's illegal to take documents from, from the government, it's illegal to hold on to secret, top secret clearance documents, it's illegal to defraud the entire country and try to stop an election from happening or to reverse the results. There's no country. So, you know, Honest Abe managed to, I guess it was a difficult unity, but unite the country in one of our darkest hours. The statement still holds true. If we can't enforce the laws and make it a nation of laws, even when it's challenging and even when, you know, half your neighbors are not on board with it for not even for the right reasons, but really just partisan reasons, it'll be lost. So I, I wanted to kind of uh, underscore that before we closed. All right, let's close. It's always good to close by quoting Abraham Lincoln. I had never heard that quote. I wrote it down, and when we're done, I'm going to look it up in the internet and make sure it's correct. And <laughs> if it's not correct, I don't care. Uh, well, let's let it go for the next uh, to the next time we have a conversation. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for taking the time, A, to write this memo, the Coogan memo, I will, <laughs> uh, which I will shamelessly uh, use uh, for at least two months, uh, and B, for uh, coming on the show and talking to me. Really appreciate it, Jim. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you for having me. All right. That's the great Jim Coogan. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 